We are in week three of a new series uh, on boundaries, way too far into it to review all of the things that we've talked about. But I do want to uh, just highlight a couple of things that, that I think hopefully that you're discovering along with me in the series. The first is this. This series is about God because God, though, though unlimited nature, is by his own choice a God of boundaries. He, he exists in the Trinity within boundaries of purpose. And, and, and thus he's created us in his image with boundaries around our purpose. We saw that in the creation story itself, what we were to do and not to do, where we were to go and not to go. We discovered the good and godly boundaries in the creation story, that boundaries were what God used and, and always does use to create order out of chaos because he is not a God of chaos, he is a God of order. Boundaries exist for our good. They are not punitive in nature. God is not holding back on us creating boundaries. They give us freedom. They remove worry and anxiety. They're not punitive, as I said. We don't use them for evil. We don't enforce boundaries to hurt other people. We do them for our good and their good. All of this is displayed in the creation story. Now, last week, we, we saw how God puts relational boundaries in place because they exist in our relationship with God. Remember this, we discussed this last week, this access versus responsibility chart, how we see that modeled in God's relationship with man and with God's relationship with Israel. You saw it specifically with, with God and Adam and their responsibilities and what happened when they, they, they dropped the, their responsibilities, how access was limited. Same thing with his son Cain. It was visibly shown to the people in the tabernacle and in the temple in Jerusalem. And we also saw that boundary violations, when you trespass boundaries, there are consequences. There should be consequences. Most often the consequences that are involved with trespassing of boundaries is a reduction in access down, in a sense, to where the level of responsibility has been displayed. Now, I remind you of these things because I really want, and I'm, I'm, again, I'm discovering these along with you. I am terrible at boundaries. Joan reminds me of that as I'm teaching this series. You know, you should listen to yourself. Um, I, I, <laughs> she says that more often than I'd like you to know, but um, as I remind you of these principles, I, I'm doing it because this is not some kind of self-help-oriented series that we're working our way through. This isn't psycho-babble. This is, this is all because God is a God of order and not of, not, not of chaos, and he uses boundaries to bring order out of chaos. According to Jesus, he came to give us life and to give us life abundantly, not chaotically. And therefore, where we find chaos in our lives, we likely need to erect boundaries in those places to be good stewards of the life and the gifts that God has given us. We have limited amounts of time and talent and energy and money and emotions. Boundaries are a stewardship of those gifts. In fact, one day we will be accountable to God for what we did with them. You want boundaries in your life. God wants boundaries in your life. Now, if you remember week one, I introduced you to a concept of what a boundary is, right? The simplest way, I'm gonna come over here and get it, the simplest way to describe a boundary is to begin to think about it as a fence. It's funny, both online and in the room, when I put this up week one, people had a visceral reaction to it. Because in general, we don't like boundaries. Right? We're uncomfortable with them. This is why our lives become oftentimes the mess that we can get ourselves into, because we're uncomfortable with this concept. Several people um, said, I don't like that. Um, I don't like you behind it. <laughs> 
could you get rid of that? Could we make sure somebody wrote, could we make sure it's not a permanent fixture here at Mendham? It will not be a permanent fixture at Mendham. But a boundary is just simply a property line, right, that defines this is mine. This is what I'm responsible for, right? This is my stuff. This is your stuff. This is what you're responsible for. A boundary keeps in, what, in my stuff, that sa- it keeps it safe, keeps the good things that I have, right, safe from others, and it keeps the bad things I don't want to impact my life and my stuff out. Now, boundary problems tend to arise, and I'll show you this today, especially in relationships, which is what we're talking about right now, when people violate boundaries. When the guy next door, when his tree overcomes or over, overgrows my fence and starts dropping all of its stuff in my yard, when his things start impacting my things, or conversely, when I start, for whatever reason it could be, and a lot of times it's driven out of a good desire, where I start going in and, and taking responsibility for what's clearly his responsibility in his yard. I didn't, I didn't stay within the boundaries. Dr. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, in their, as I've been describing, an unimaginably titled book on boundaries called Boundaries, um, which I've said has sold over four million copies. If you ever wonder if people have boundary problems, right? They share what, for them in the book, and, and they share this story in all of their seminars all over the world, and it's such a familiar story, but it's a revealing story, and it shows the situation playing out in real life, and I thought I would read it to you because I'm going to read it, and you're going to go, hmm, um, that's either my story or it's a story I'm familiar with. Dr. Cloud wrote that the parents of a 25-year-old man came to see him while he was working in a psychiatric hospital, and they had a common request. They wanted him to fix their son, Joshua. He writes, when I asked where Joshua was, they answered, oh, he didn't want to come. Why, I asked. Well, he doesn't think he has a problem, they replied. Well, maybe he's right, I said to their surprise. Tell me, um, tell me about it. They recited a history of problems that began at a very young age, He had never been quite up to snuff in their eyes. In recent years, he'd exhibited problems with drugs and inability to stay in school and find a career. It was apparent that they loved their son very much and that they were heartbroken over the way he was living. They had tried everything they knew to get him to change and to live a responsible life, but all had failed. He was still using drugs, he was avoiding responsibility, and he was keeping questionable company. They told me that they had always given him everything that he needed. They supported him financially at school so he, quote, wouldn't have to work and he would have plenty of time to study and have a social life. When he flunked out of one school or stopped going to classes, they were more than happy to do everything they could to get him into a second school where a, quote, might be a better fit for him. And then when he flunked out of that school, they got him into yet a third school. After they talked for a while, I responded, I think your son's right. He doesn't have a problem. You could have mistaken their expression for a, for a snapshot. They stared at me in disbelief for a full minute. Finally, the father said, did I hear you right? You don't think he has a problem? That's correct, I said. He doesn't have a problem. You do. He can do pretty much whatever he wants. No problem. You pay, you fret, you worry, you plan, you exert energy to keep him going. He doesn't have a problem because you haven't taken it from him. Or, excuse me, you have taken it from him. Those things should be his problem, but as it stands now, they're yours. Would you like for me to help? Would you like for me to help you help him to have some problems? 
They looked at me like I was crazy, but some lights were beginning to go on in their heads. What do you mean, help them have some problems, his mother asked. Well, I explained, I think the solution to this problem would be to clarify some boundaries so that his actions cause him problems and not you. What do you mean boundaries, the father asked. Look at it this way. It's as if he's your neighbor who never waters his lawn. But whenever you turn on your sprinkler system, the water falls on his lawn. Your grass is turning brown and dying, but Joshua looks down at his green grass and thinks to himself, my yard's doing fine. This is how your son's life is. He doesn't study or plan or work, yet he has a nice place to live, plenty of money, and all the rights of a family member who's doing his part. If you would define the property line a little better, if you would fix the sprinkler system so that it, it waters, its water would fall on your lawn, if he, didn't water, if he didn't water his own lawn, he'd have to live in dirt. He might not like that after a while. I asked them where their son was that he couldn't attend the meeting. They responded he was in Vail skiing. <laughs> I looked back at them and said, he's in Vail skiing, and you're here in a psychiatric hospital with me. You know who comes to psychiatric hospitals, don't you? People with problems. Your son is right. He doesn't have a problem. You do. As it stands now, he's irresponsible and happy, and you're responsible and miserable. A little boundary clarification would do the trick. You need some fences to keep his problems out of your yard and, and his where they belong. Isn't it, my parents, you know that this feeling, right? Isn't that a bit cruel just to stop helping like that? The father asked. Has helping him helped, I asked. His look told me that he was beginning to understand. Familiar story, right? Last week, I introduced you to a relational dynamic that exists between God and man that we need to consider. I called it the universal functional crazy relational matrix, right? This week, I want to introduce you to a whole new dynamic on a similar chart. And again, it's one we should know well. Last week, right, what we discovered is you can't be giving 10-level access to people that show two-level responsibility or you're going to create a giant crazy zone in your life. You need to oftentimes increase the distance, reduce the access. This is not punitive. This is not even about them. It's a restriction you oftentimes have to put on yourself so that the access, and we looked at this with bank, card, bank cards. We do this with our debit card. The access goes down to meet the level of responsibility. That's what we looked at last week, right? This week, I want to show you a new relational dynamic. It's the relational dynamic we enjoy. You actually live in it with God right now. And it's supposed to be the relational dynamic that's at work within how we relate to one another. In fact, it's part of God's character. And since we're made in his image, right, we're the ones that are responsible for shepherding this concept well in our relationships. It should, too, be part of our character. Here it is. I'll read it to you from Jesus' disciple John. John walked with Jesus during his three years of ministry. John went on to preach the gospel all over the place. Many of you know he was finally exiled to an island called Patmos. John began writing about his accounts with Jesus when he was a very old man. Most scholars think it was at least 30 years later that he begins to sit down and write this. And in 30 years of looking back on this, it could have been up to 60 years later, Here's what John wrote when he had to explain what he saw with Jesus. He refers to Jesus as the Word, the Word of God. He, he said, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Grace and truth. God is a God of grace and truth, fully revealed in Jesus. Notice now, this is important to understand because we mess this up a lot. He is not half grace and half truth. He is not depending on the day or circumstances, either grace or truth. He is not an amalgam of grace and truth. He's not some days 80-20, right? The Pareto principle does not apply with God and grace and truth. He is 24-7, 365, 100% of the time, 100% grace and 100% truth at all times and every time. Now, I want you to know that this revelation about God is not new. God is unchanging. You see it when God introduced himself to Moses in the Old Testament. And he passed in front of Moses, the, the scriptures say, proclaiming, this is God, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Grace and truth. This is our relationship with God. These are the two pillars on which our relationship with God rests. All grace, all truth, all the time. My favorite place, and you see this a lot in the scriptures, but my favorite place where you see it is in my favorite psalm. I don't know if you have a favorite psalm. If you don't, may I recommend Psalm 103 to you. But this, this description that David gives of the Lord to me just always sticks with me. The Lord is, he writes, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He picks up on what God said of himself. I like this. He will not always accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He will not always accuse, nor will he ha harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Grace and truth. And it's these two pillars, right, of our relationship with God uh, that our relationship with others is supposed to rest too. And I'm not assuming that. It's actually commanded. This is how we are to relate to one another according. Well, Peter, walk on water. Peter, I'll never deny you. Peter, Peter, the rock on whose confession, right? The rock on which I'll build my church. Here's what Peter wrote about how we were to relate to one another. He said, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. We are stewards. God has given us grace. We, we are to dispense it in our relationships one with one another. Now, what does it mean? You know, grace is a confusing word sometimes in the scripture. What, what is God's grace? What it means in its most, you know, simplest form, I guess, it means God's favor. It means his inclination, what he is inclined towards. The word in the Greek, I, I spent some time studying it this week, it reveals that God's disposition is always towards us. He's always freely extending himself to us to give himself away. He's always leaning toward you. In our relationship with God, his grace towards us 
many of you know this, isn't earned. You haven't done anything to deserve God to lean towards you. You're not, it's not do you. It's just his will, his choice. This is who he is. His unmerited favor rests on you. At its core, here's what grace means. Now, I want you to really embrace this. You might have heard of it before, but I want you to think about it, where you stand with God and how this would relate to how you treat other people. At its core, grace means that there is nothing, nothing you can do to get God to love you more. Like if it was a test tube, it's full. There's nothing you can do to get God to love you anymore. He's already full of grace for you. And conversely, there is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to diminish his love and grace towards you. Nothing. Think about how freeing that is. When properly understood, when properly expressed in a relationship, right? What this means for God is that God is permanently for us. He's permanently for us. You can't do anything to, to get him not to be for you, and you haven't done anything to get him to be for you. He is for you. And we're to be that way in our relationships, full of grace, unmoved in some sense by the performance of people. And when that exists in relationships, right, that's when people imagine, I mean, imagine if you really were in a relationship like this, full of grace, it's those kind of relationships where you can just breathe, right? This is, I mean, I enjoy this kind of relationship with my wife. I almost never feel judged by my wife. I love being home. Like, I, I never, you know, maybe for the first bunch of years of, of my marriage, I wondered, well, you know, isn't she tired of me just sitting here while she works? And, I, <laughs> and I've grown to believe she actually isn't. She enjoys, do, you know, I'm like, just sit down and relax. I can't. Um, she just loves me. She, she, I assume that she would be judging me. She's not judging me. She just loves me, right? Think about how freeing that is, right? When we get it in, right in relationships, people can relax, feel at home, 100% safe, accepted, no condemnation, no judgment. Grace is what frees people to open up. Grace is what draws people towards others versus closing them down and having them pull away. Our relationships, right, rest on one pillar of grace. And then so too, though, we are commanded to reflect, the, uh, we are stewards of the other pillar of grace, truth. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? It means that we are called, we are stewarding the truth, right, it means that we should not be afraid of Holy Spirit-led confrontation where it is vital to tell others the truth so that they can live in the reality of truth, in God's reality rather than in personal illusion. This is best done in relationships, not on street corners with bullhorns. Let me repeat that. This is best done in relationships, not on street corners with bullhorns. Truth is what's real, what is actuality, what is undisputed. Gravity is truth. You can deny that gravity is truth. In fact, the way things are going in our world, it won't be long, right? Oh, there's no, it's, it's, you know, no such thing as gravity, right? But if you were up on a window ledge telling me you were going to jump, what kind of friend would I be if I was just all grace and no truth? If I stood on the street below you and said, I'm on your team. I'm behind you 
jump. I believe in you. I'm with you. What kind of friend would I be? You'd be thinking, boy, this is a great friend while you're on the ledge. When you hit the pavement, you would be thinking otherwise. Grace and truth are to be the two pillars of, of any relationship with anybody else because they are the pillars on which our relationship with God sit, and we are called to extend those in relationships. Now, back to the graph, right? If we take these two out and we look at it a different way, You've got truth and grace, right? And they're to be extended equally. But you see, most of the time, in most of the relationships you and I live in, that has not been the case. What happens in relationships when chaos begins, and we saw it last week when the crazy train, I called it, pulls into dysfunction junction, is when grace and truth in a relationship get out of that balance and the relationship tends to lean, and this is most of our relationships. It's very difficult to have this relationship. I don't know if you're in a relationship like this where I've, I can tell you the truth and you're not going to run from me. Right, and because you know I love you so much and I'm not going anywhere, that's a rare relationship. And because they're so rare, what we tend to have is relationships either lean towards truth or they lean towards grace. In the story Henry Cloud told of the father and his son, what got out of balance? Can you look back at that now and see, see what was going on, what was lost in the relationship? What happened was the son was taking full advantage of the father's grace. He, the relationship had moved so far off of a line of balance between truth and grace, the son is just trampling all over the father's grace. He's, it, it, it's cheap. He's, he's just using it for his own good and his own purposes. No thought for the father. And the son, to the extent the father was sharing any truth, the son is rejecting the truth. He's uninterested in the truth. He's refusing it. Now, here's what, we, what, what you saw. Ultimately, whose problem was it? It was the father's problem. Why? Because of boundaries. The father is over here, even though it's his son. It's, a, he, it's not a 10-year-old. It was 23, I think. The son is over here. The father's in his yard, constantly cleaning up after him, constantly chasing after him, right? Ultimately, right, it became the father's problems. The father was taking responsibility financially, emotionally, for his son's repeated bad choices. Now, he wasn't. See, this is the thing about boundaries. The father wasn't doing it out of bad will. He wasn't trying to hurt his son. He loved his son. He wanted what was best for his son. But he had this savior mentality. And ultimately, what was happening? Everybody was getting hurt by the lack of boundaries. The son, it wasn't working for the son. The father and his wife, it wasn't working for them. My guess is, if you read into it more, their relationship was burdened and strained by what was happening. It became chaos. There were no boundaries in place. What was missing was the concept of truth. The son needed to, to and we'll talk about this next week, the son needed to reap what he had sown. And of course, there are people, especially with their children, especially when your children, see, I see the other side of this too. I see this side more often, but there's another side. When parents, when their kids don't turn out who they wanted them to be, when they, when they turn out to not share your beliefs, 
not, 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 not believe in your values, when they, when they way kind of reject all of the things, all of the way. I, you know, how many of us have said, I didn't raise you this way, right? And so what tends to happen is, right, they go hard on the truth side. You're dead to me. I don't want to talk to you. You're out of the will. They go hard on the truth side. I haven't, you, you can see this when somebody tells you, I haven't talked to my dad in 10 years. I haven't seen my daughter in months. The relationship got out of balance, right? It's all truth, or at least their version of the truth, right? It's all correction. It's all discipline. It's all consequences all the time. And what you really see at the heart of that relationship is the same struggle that goes on in every dysfunctional relationship. In every dysfunctional relationship at its core is a struggle for control. Again, back to the garden, right? One boundary. God says to Adam and Eve, all of this is yours. You can eat from any of it. You can enjoy all of it. You can work on and rule over everything except for this one boundary. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that's my responsibility. I'm in control of that. You know what happens. What does man do? What do we always want? We always want control. And so we cross the boundary into God's area of responsibility, into his yard, and we try to take on God's responsibilities for God, right? Why? Because we want control. Over what? Well, most of the time we go, well, I just want control over my own life. But the truth is we actually want control over God too. We want him to do what we want. We want to decide for ourselves what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's evil. I, I've worked with a lot of guys from the Market Street Mission over the years, and m many of them have become good friends of mine, and, and they would tell you that this is the pattern that, that people who struggle with addictions have in their relationships, the struggle for control. Uh, addiction is a horrible slave master. When it takes hold of a person, they often become a person they don't want to be. They actually lose control of themselves. Some of you have been there. They become exactly what it is that, that, they, that they hate. I've had several of my friends, ex-addicts ex of one thing or another, that have told me when I'm using drugs or if I'm drinking, they said, if my lips are moving, I'm lying. They've told me, listen, if you know I'm using, don't believe a word I'm telling you because I'm lying to you. Their lives become out of their control, right? But here's what I almost always see. Where does the burden of their out-of-control lives, right? Where do the leaves of the tree in their yard, where do they often fall? On those they love. It creates a problem for all of the people that are in relationship with them. Parents, spouses. I'm not telling you guys anything that most of you haven't tasted. Addiction in one form or another tends to visit all of our families. And so what do we do? What, what do we do? We love. And so we love. We try to control. We try to, we try to fix them. We, we try to bear the burden of their addiction. You wind up running over to their yard to take responsibilities for their lives and their pain. You become a parent even if you aren't their parent. And often in trying to fix them, you wind up, and, and I've, I can't tell you how often I've seen this, you wind up enabling them. Grace gets trampled all over, gets totally out of balance. Truth is exchanged for lies. Wow, you know, you kind of keep it over in the corner. Nobody wants to make any waves or accusations and... What happens? Everything gets out of balance, and nobody gets better. Everybody is miserable. 
Oftentimes, and I've met many, many spouses and many parents of addicts, many times because of this out-of-balance relationship and the desire to control, what tends to happen is the only person more miserable than the addict is the person trying to love the addict by controlling him, trying to love him through it. As I've said to many friends, love looks very different given different sets of circumstances. Grace and truth get out of balance when we try to control other people. And here's another all too common experience in dysfunctional relationships. Grace and truth tend to get out of balance when others try to control us. When people come and play, now they're in my yard, right? And I, I feel it. I feel under their you know, desire to control me. When people come and, and try to force you into something, guilt you into something, manipulate, manipulate you into something, burden you into getting what they want from you, insisting that you do it their way or that their responsibilities or their dysfunctions or their feelings or their hopes and dreams and plans, those are all actually your responsibility, not theirs. They're your burden to carry. These kind of control relationships tend to get out of balance on the truth side. And it's often not even the actual truth. It's merely their truth that they're constantly using to try to control you. Now, this tends to play out. This will sound familiar to you. It tends to play out one of two ways. The first is people try to control others by anger. I do a fair amount of marriage counseling, and this is something I come across often. Gentlemen, not to point a finger, this tends to be, not always, mind you, it does work the other way sometimes, but this tends to be a rut for men, a pattern of sin that, that most of us fall into very easily in our relationships, especially in the close ones, most often seen with our wives and our kids. Oftentimes, it's because, gentlemen, this is the pattern of relationship we were introduced to. This is how our dads lived with our moms. It, it's the dynamic of the relationship that, that's the only model you had. You might even know it was a bad model. I know it was a bad model. But it's just so baked in. It's just like, oh, it's almost in the DNA. It just, it just comes out. And you replicate it anyway. You try to control those that, that you're closest to through anger. And so, so your wife or, or sometimes your children, your adult children at least, they feel as if they have no voice. They don't have a say in anything. How the money gets spent, where you go on vacation, who does what in the distribution of household responsibilities. From how the children are raised and spoken to, to what gets watched on TV at night. The angry person, right, half the time doesn't even realize he's doing it because they don't actually feel the anger themselves. But the other people in the house, the others in the relationships, you see this amongst friends sometimes too, a, a relationship where one of the party just feels like they're always... Do you have those relationships where you feel like you're always just walking on eggshells? Like, I just got to be careful. Got to be careful. Why? Why do you that? I mean, in a relationship of grace and truth, why would you have to be careful? Well, because if I say the wrong thing, they're going to really let me have it. And so you, you do your best to just, right, go along, to get along. You just try to keep the peace, keep dad happy. No grace. No grace. Just his or her ver version of truth. No, no safety, all judgment. Now, the second way people tend to, to do this, right, that tend to get grace and truth balance out of whack by extending control over others isn't through aggression uh, and anger, but through what's become known as passive aggression and guilt. Anger controls by saying, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to be angry and you're going to feel the blast. Guilt says, if you don't do it my way, I'm going to be really hurt. 
I'll be so disappointed. It's a subtler form of control, but it's every bit as toxic and oftentimes much more common and more powerful. I'm going to control what's, what's your responsibility and how am I going to do it by making you feel bad. Now, can I be honest? We all do this to one degree or another. As I was studying it this week, I was just thinking all of the ways in my life I use this technique. Um, my son lives in Abu Dhabi right now, and we saw him a few weeks ago. And, and I'm just, I don't want to try to control him with my, my, my guilt and grief, but I couldn't help it. I was spewing it out. <laughs> Probably going to miss another birthday at Landry's. Grandma's getting older. Because <laughs> I want my son to come home. I want to control his, I want to play in his yard. I'm not even planning this. It just, it just happens, right? I, I need him to know my truth and make sure he understands it. Not thinking it, it, it just comes out. If you have adult children, who gets to decide? Parents, <laughs> who gets to decide where your adult children are going to spend Christmas? Whose responsibility is that choice? It's theirs, right? I mean, they're full-grown adults. They should have the freedom. Can we all agree it should be their choice? Anybody from the outside would go, you're a grown woman, you're a grown man, you decide where you want to spend your holidays. Yet, what parent has not somehow subtly let their kids know how hurt or how disappointed grandma and Aunt Tilly are going to be if they don't get to see the baby for Christmas? <laughs> uh, don't we all do that? We do it with birthdays. We do it with family vacations. I had a friend who, whose mother-in-law, and this is in a previous life. I wasn't a pastor yet. This is not a Menham Hills person, so if this is going on in your house, don't look at your spouse and say, you told him. It, it, it's just coincidence, I swear to you. But their mother-in-law continued not only to buy their husband all of his clothes, even down to his underwear. His mother was still buying his underwear, right? This is a man with a wife, a house, and kids. His mommy was not only still shopping for him, his mother would come to the house and organize seasonally all of his clothes in his bedroom dressers because she, she was the only one that could do it right. Now, you can imagine how this made that man's wife feel. Even the husband thought it was ridiculous. But when I asked them why they don't say something, both of them gave the same answer, right? Because if we do, she's going to be really... Right? It depends on which side she's going to fall on this. Right? She's going to be really angry. She's going to be really hurt. She's really going to be really hurt. And so, so they didn't do anything about it. What happens? No boundaries. Where there are no boundaries, relational chaos. The wife is mad at the husband because he won't say anything. The husband's mad at the wife because she just can't let it go. Both of them are upset with the mother-in-law for being in their yard. All of the relationships are just fraught with tension, right? And all you need is just one spark at Thanksgiving dinner. Just one spark. Boom! You laugh because you've seen this play itself out, haven't you? No boundaries. All you needed was a boundary, right? I mean, in this case, right, all, all the husband had to do was call his mom and say, Mom, I love you. I just, I, I think you shouldn't do this anymore. If it's okay, I, I, I'd rather have you just come and visit. I think, I, I'm, I'm worried we might be sending the wrong message to my wife. Maybe. Maybe it's an awkward conversation for a few minutes. But the chaos stops and the relationships wind up getting saved. People stop talking about each other behind their backs. People stop harboring hurt. It's all fixed by a simple boundary. Simple boundary. 
Healthy relationships have equal parts grace and truth, right? Which are not taken out of balance by people trying to control others, crossing their boundaries into their yards. Finally, they're this for this morning. How do you determine where that healthy boundary should be? Last week, I told you that boundary needed to be, right? You needed to reduce access down to the level of responsibility. That's where you should place a boundary. This week, I'm going to give you another place to place a boundary, and it's based off of a pretty famous teaching from the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. Here's what he said, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Now, what he's referring to there when he says the law of Christ, most theologians believe it's when Jesus said to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and you might read that and say, carry each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. And you might say, well, that's the problem, John. That's what I was taught growing up. And how am I supposed to draw a boundary? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to love my, my neighbor as myself and carry their burdens? I mean... You want me to draw a boundary? This is why I'm burned out already. This is why chaos is reigning in my life now and in my relationships. Because I don't have enough emotional energy to carry my own stuff. And now I'm supposed to carry everybody else's. And it might seem that way until you drop down just, just another line or two. He goes on. For each one should carry their own load. Did you ever see that before? I never had. For each one should carry their own load. Carry each other's burdens, carry your own load. At first, it makes no sense. But Cloud and Townsend, in, in their book, point out that in the Greek, those two, two words, burdens and load, load, carried different meanings. A, a burden was significant, unusual weight, mostly to do with trouble. They describe it in their book as a boulder. A burden is like a boulder that got dropped on somebody and is literally destroying them in, in many ways. Boulders are, are things that drop into almost everybody's life at different times. Divorce, bankruptcy, medical conditions, mental illness, physical disabilities, loss of a job, uh, loss of a home. This is where we are to help carry one another's burdens. When those things drop into somebody's life, this is where you as family and friends, we as a church, this is why we have MHCC Cares, that come alongside and help people carry that burden until the burden can be placed down correctly and they can begin to walk in their own lives again. Now, a boulder is opposed to a load. We're to bear one another's burdens, but we're supposed to carry our own loads. The word load there carried with it a different meaning. According to Cloud and Townsend, it, it carried with it a connotation of a, a backpack or a, a knapsack, something much lighter, whose purpose is essentially there to meet your daily needs, your, your daily responsibilities. Not just the physical stuff either. That, of course, would be in there, right? Food and money and housing. But less tangible things like your thoughts and your, your, your feelings, the things you cherish. Who is responsible for your feelings? You are. Sometimes in, in our, our crazy culture, I'm, I'm, I want to scream out, who's responsible for your triggers? You are. And we're always trying to get somebody else to carry these things. And so what Paul is saying to the Galatians and to us is this. Life goes well when we carry our own loads and when we bear with others their burdens. Life gets messy when we attempt to give others our loads and, and bear one another's daily loads and leave people to their own devices with their own burdens. How do you set a boundary? You 
Is, that, is, is what you're trying to, you have to ask yourself a question, is what you're trying to control in others' lives a boulder or a knapsack? Is the fence you are crossing, are you assuming responsibility to help with a boulder, or are you literally doing for them what they should be doing for themselves? Are you trying to fix somebody, or someone's emotions, or their feelings, or their attitudes, things that they were meant to fix, that they were meant to bear? Simple boundary question, right? You draw the boundary where the responsibility lies. I'll close with this. Two pillars of a, fun, uh, of a functional, godly, I would say holy relationship. Grace and truth. Oftentimes they get out of balance because of our desire to control others. And I have to tell you, I, I see this over and over as I study in this series. All of these things about boundaries and healthy relationships are put on display over and over again by Jesus. Tim Keller has this great quote. He said, quote, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we can't really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet radical, uncontrolled commitment to us, grace. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see truth about ourselves and repent the conviction and repentance move us to cling and to rest in God's mercy and grace. Grace, truth, control. Where do you see those things come together? Couldn't help but just see the picture over and over in my mind this week. You see them all come to together no place better than on the cross of Jesus. The actual one who has the right and the power to control everything, right? The creator of everything that's ever been made. The one that the scriptures say is over all and through all. And you see Jesus on the cross giving up control of his own life in order that we might have life. When you look at the cross, you see the broken, beaten, bruised body of Jesus reminding us of the truth that we are more sinful and, and broken and flawed in ourselves than you ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, at the very same moment, you see his grace poured out in his blood, shouting across the centuries to people like you and I, we are more loved and accepted in him than we ever dared hope. This is your relationship in Jesus. Now go and live in that same way with others. Let's stand and close in song.